This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Tonight, we are thrilled to have Naomi Alderman with us for a discussion of the future. Naomi attended Oxford University in UEA. Her best-selling novel, The Power, was the winner of the 2017 Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction. It was long-listed for the 2017 Orwell Prize and chosen as one of the best books of the year by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, NPR, Entertainment Weekly, and the San Francisco Chronicle. The Power topped Barack Obama's list of his favorite books from 2017. Joining Naomi in conversation is Maris Kreisman. Maris is a writer and the host of the Maris Review, a literary podcast. Her essays and criticism have appeared in the New York Times, New York Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, Vanity Fair, Esquire, The New Republic, and more. Her essay collection, I Want to Burn This Place Down, is forthcoming from Echo and HarperCollins. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Naomi and Maris to the stage. <laughs> Hi everyone. I'm I'm so excited to be here and I thought I'm so excited for you to read Naomi's book. You've really captured the zeitgeist <laughs> here. <laughs> I mean, tell me about the tech billionaire as just the the villain that we're all thinking about right now. Yeah, well, so I believe now that out of the 10 richest people in the world, eight of them are tech billionaires. So that's why they're on our minds these days. I think that sort of crept up on us without us necessarily noticing it as it was happening. And for a long time we thought, oh, this is some subsidiary part of life. It's, you know, these are not really the most powerful people. Did you know, I was just in Seattle yesterday and um, there's a special line for check-in for employees of Amazon and Facebook. Did you know that? Oh. Uh, Microsoft. Yeah. Right. Right. I just thought, okay, th this is what I'm writing about. Um, suddenly, this is another kind of a passport. And if you have that, you are part of a kind of nation. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's happened. And... Um, the, 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 the newspaper, The Telegraph in the UK, uh, asked me to write on the subject of why is everybody writing about tech billionaires now? And I wrote a piece which starts with, why is this? Well, why are there so many kings in the plays of Shakespeare? <laughs> <laughs> this is the reason. Um, they are extremely powerful now. And uh, the fact that we all thought they were nerds 20 years ago means nothing. <laughs> Absolutely. And I... I I am fascinated by the fact that you were writing this book long before Elon Musk took over Twitter. <laughs> that is true. And we watched as its usefulness kind of tapered off. And, and one of the big subjects in the future is the idea that tech can be useful for all sorts of emergencies, can bring us together. Right. 
and, and indeed is useful. There are useful things that we do with it every day. Um, some actually, yeah. Sorry, now I'm just commenting on other interviews. Forgive me. It's been, a, it's been, it's been a funny week. I've been in like five different cities this week. Um, where somebody was saying to me, "Well, are you for technology or against it?" And I go, "Well, I don't, I don't think that's how that works. Um, I think, uh, you know, a technology is a tool. It, any tool can broadly be used for good things or bad things. Um, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm." I'm in favor of gun control, so uh, yes. There are, <laughs> there are some tools which are clearly intended for use for mostly bad things. Um, but uh, in general, you know, you have a knife, you can use it to cut a salad or you can uh, harm somebody with it. So yeah, technology has done incredible things. And people who are quite a bit younger than me, which there are some here, I think, um, will not remember when literally, if you didn't know something, and you weren't in a library with an encyclopedia. You just had to sort of guess and, <laughs> and go, well, <laughs> may, maybe it's, does anybody here remember what that is? I, d I don't know. Um, and just, it's a sort of force multiplier for so many things to be able to now find out stuff. Um, at the same time as obviously it's um, causing us all to become incredibly polarized, destroying the public uh, sphere of debate, uh, making us all very anxious and depressed. So those, those things seem bad. <laughs> <laughs> they sure do. I, I, and also, the tech billionaire s sort of embodies right now like the rugged individualism of, right. well, the American dream. Right. Um, but like on steroids. Right, like yes. Yeah, so um, yeah, one of the inspirations for the novel was um, uh, a few years ago, I read a New Yorker article that some of you may have read uh, about the tech billionaires building their bunkers. Did you know that was just real? I didn't make it up. Um, <laughs> that and and having worked in the tech industry for the past twenty odd years, um, and having known some people who are now tech billionaires, I I think yeah, that that absolutely checks out. I I one hundred percent believe that they would do that and. Um, it speaks to this, as you say, the rugged individualist idea, which is to say, uh, all I need to do is protect myself. And as long as I survive, then I'm fine. I don't need anybody else. I don't rely on anybody else. And you know, one of the thoughts behind the book is to say, I, I, d I don't think that's true. I don't, I don't think you can leave the rest of us to suffer and die in a terrible, e.g. climate apocalypse, and then feel great and be great. <laughs> it seems like a real sad way to live. Right. Well, it just, you know, historically just doesn't work. <laughs> and, and, and probably the <laughs> mindset of someone who is preparing all the time for the world to end um, and thinking about that and how they'll save themselves is probably not good at being in the moment or at meditating. <laughs> uh, right, yes. I mean, <laughs> I, I also have had that similar experience whilst meditating, which I'm sure almost <laughs> yeah. everybody has. If you've tried it out, you've gone, this is very difficult. <laughs> uh, but I, I, as I understand it, that's the point. The point is to struggle with, some, with an impossible task and then just keep forgiving yourself, apparently. Love that. <laughs> And then, of course, in the book, we have another survival-minded person who comes from a completely different 
mindset. She, she was a refugee in the fall of Hong Kong. Yeah, so I, I, don't, know, I don't know if people here um, know about the situation in Hong Kong right now, which is, it's, it's, it's not looking amazing for the people of Hong Kong. Um, it's yet another situation where the British turned up and um, then uh, uh, just sort of left a bad situation and wandered off. Um, actually, it, interestingly, uh, Britain seems to be, you know, taking some responsibility there, which is which is quite good, and people are able to uh, apply for particular kinds of visa to um, uh, come and live in the UK. Uh, but yes, it's it struck me as if I was setting a b this book, which is uh, it doesn't specify it's somewhere probably between five and ten years in the future from today, that uh, something may well have gone quite wrong in Hong Kong, which you know China would like to take full control of Hong Kong. I think that's that everybody understands that um, that the the one country two systems is uh, failing. Um, so yes, my character uh, Lai Zhen is somebody who would be about a sort of late teenager now. Um, and uh, what happens to her, which, which you discover through the, through the novel, is that she um, had one of those bureaucratic errors. Her mother was dying of cancer. They didn't get their forms in in time, which, again, that's, you know, there's a limited window. And uh, the UK right now is also, because our, 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 our dead duck government uh, they say lame duck, but it really is a dead duck um, at this point, is, is saying that they want to do offshore refugee camps, which is to say if you apply for asylum in the UK, um, then they will send you to Rwanda whilst your application is being processed, which may take several years. So all of that was in my mind. Um, I mean, I, I keep showing people the very nice graph uh, of current UK voting intention, which is that for the past year, the left-wing party, the Labour Party, has been 20 points ahead consistently, all the way. Nothing that anybody does can change it. So in the UK, we're just sort of waiting out our quasi-fascist government. Um, <laughs> and, it, and it does look as if we're going to be getting rid of them. But um, yeah, as I was writing the book, I was thinking about what that situation would be to be sent to an offshore refugee camp. And um, this character who has survived that and then becomes a survival journalist in uh, the future of the, uh, the, the, the apocalypse beat in journalism. She, wri she writes about the apocalypse. Uh, so, yeah, she is one of my main characters. She's great. Uh, and, and just, I, I know that the idea of the survivalist influencer is not entirely... New, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, and prepping for the end of the world feels like something you do either because you've been hurt before mm. or <laughs> because you have a nice bunker. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, or because you're fundamentally a psychopath. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think... Um, you know, I, I guess I guess as a Jewish person, Jewish people are often thinking about uh, if I had to run, where would I run to, and what would I do, and how would I get out? And um, certainly, you know, <laughs> I think I think this is potentially not as much news in New York as it is in the UK. But um, 
I, do, I think Jewish people watch Holocaust movies um, as a sort of how-to manual, where you go, okay, okay, where did, where did they make their mistakes? Um, when, when should they have left? Uh, so I think that has often been in my mind. At the same time, also, right now, we've all had the experience of living through a world-shifting, terrifying event, and we probably all have those bits of knowledge now about going, okay, so I'm, I'm keeping some shelf-stable foods in the house all the time because I don't want to have to live through that again. Uh, do you guys remember, I don't know if you had this here, do you, do you remember when, um, did you have to like get up at three o'clock in the morning to get a grocery delivery slot in like April 2020 mm -hmm. if you didn't want to go to the grocery store? Mm -hmm. All of those things, wait, I feel like some, some of that is, which we're quite kind of deliberately forgetting it now. I mean, in many ways, it was very impressive because we discovered how robust the capitalist system is. And actually, <laughs> actually, we did get our stuff. Um, but in another way, we go, oh, okay, that's made me think about what else could be coming. Yeah. And, and the people who got the most stuff, of course, were the tech billionaires. Oh, <laughs> right. Right. Yes. And they became even more wealthy because all we could do was sit in our house and watch box sets and order things on the internet. <laughs> so here we are. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, w one of the other things that I had to remind myself that you didn't write this book in the past year or so is is the idea of AI. And I feel like I don't I don't know about you, but I feel like it's been within the past year that I've been able to really envision how AI might change our lives for the worse. <laughs> and and you were you were. Um, <laughs> on the tip a long a long time ago <laughs> right right i did get to a point in writing the book where i thought are my readers going to let me get away with doing three pages in which i explain machine learning to them and what yeah uh, did i get I away with it. it yeah right okay would would everybody here like to understand how machine learning works okay great great um so uh this this is for people who weren't necessarily good at maths at school but i i i think i can get you through it okay in fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And at the end, you'll go, oh, <laughs> is that all it is? Right. So uh, we are familiar with the game of tic-tac-toe, uh, which has a board with nine squares in it. Uh, I'm going to describe to you how, in 1960, a Scottish... Um, he, he would now be called a computer scientist, but at the time he had just he'd worked on like the Enigma machine in the UK, uh, built a machine out of matchboxes and beads that could play tic-tac-toe and win. Uh, and because tic-tac-toe in the UK is called noughts and crosses, uh, he called it Menace, which is the machine educable noughts and crosses engine, which is pleasing. So, <laughs> uh, please imagine in your mind a tic-tac-toe board where each square is a different color, right? The orange one, a red one, a yellow one, etc. 
Uh, now imagine an enormous number of matchboxes. In fact, it's about 350 matchboxes. Uh, we have emptied the matches out. The, the, what has happened to the matches need not concern us now. Uh, and on the front of each of these matchboxes is drawn a, uh, a, a different board state for a tic-tac-toe board. So a board state is just how the board can look when a game of tic-tac-toe is being played. So it may be empty, it may be that there's a cross in the top and then a circle, a, a, a zero in the middle and a cross uh, this to the side, right. Each one of those 350 odd boxes has a different board state. We also know that the, the, the squares are different colors. Inside each of these boxes is a set of a large number of beads uh, corresponding to the colors of the beads correspond to the available board squares that you could potentially put a cross or an X. Everybody with me so far? Okay. So then, in order to get this machine to play tic-tac-toe, you uh, shake the board, the, the matchbox with the appropriate board state on, on, on the side of it. You tip a bead out into your hand, and whatever color that is, then you put the X or the, or the O into that. Right, we've all got that. Uh, so it's random. The first time you do that, the machine is gonna lose really badly. You know, you're going you're gonna to have two X's in a row. Oh, good, we have visual aid. Yes, I have written a book with diagrams. <laughs> um, so, you know, you're going to have two X's in a row, and it's going to be clearly obvious that the machine ought to put the O down here, but instead it puts it over there because it's random. But then this is the clever part. At the end, when the game has been played, if the machine lost the game, then you take out all the beads of the color that left, led to the loss. And if by some chance it has won the game, then you add in a bead of all the colors that led to the win. And then you do that again and again and again and again. And when people talk about iterative learning and training an AI, this is what they're talking about. Again and again and again and again, telling it whether it got it right or wrong at the end. And then it, if, it, if it got it right, it reinforces the path that did that a little bit more. And if you got it wrong, it, what, you, can't, you can't say de-enforces. Uh, it, it, it takes away from its capacity to do that path again. This, when people talk about, yes, these AIs were trained by hundreds of people in Kenya, that, that's what they're talking about. It's that again and again and again, uh, they were saying, no, you haven't given a right answer here. Do it again, right, right, do it again. And once you've done that a couple thousand times, then you end up with a machine that can perfectly play tic-tac-toe and looks like it understands strategies. The key part is at no point did any of that understand tic-tac-toe. You are the one who understood it. You have given it your knowledge and you've crystallized, like stored your knowledge about how tic-tac-toe works in this series of matchboxes and beads. Right, now you understand machine learning. <laughs> and do all the students here feel like you, write, you could write an essay on this now. Right, and so when we say that we've created artificial, artificial intelligence is a terrible name for it because all it is is all the stuff that we have put onto the internet over the past 25 years has been used to train this machine in how to construct a sentence and what sentences are supposed to look like and what information you can put in one. And really what it is 
is a way of searching the internet that is enjoyable and convenient. It's all our stuff that we've put in there that is now feeding back to us. And the most shocking thing about it that should be making everybody incredibly angry is that because they have managed to create a new sort of presentation box for this, they are claiming that they own the contents of the box. And they don't. It belongs to all of us. I realize this sounds like socialism. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also true. Uh, so there we go. Now you can go home and think to yourself, I know what machine learning is. I know how that works. And these guys, have, they have, it's very clever. The part where you go, oh, I'm going to take the bead out, that, that's very clever. But it doesn't mean that they've invented the concept of tic-tac-toe, right? Um, and similarly, this stuff is, it's, I'm sorry to take over for a short lesson. I'll, I'll set you all an essay question at the end. You can come back to me next week and we'll discuss it in our tutorial. Um, <laughs> but uh, I feel like when I was writing the book, um, I got to a point where I thought, nobody is going to be able to understand why I'm saying that these things don't actually think unless I explain this. And I thought, maybe, maybe I'm allowed to get away with putting this into a novel uh, because I feel like I haven't heard it properly explained before. And once you know it, you can both appreciate the skill involved and also the tremendous limitations. Listen, if, if we ended up out of this with something that is really conscious and appears to really think, I would be amazed, but that would be very interesting. But I think, I think for the most part, if we look at our own brains and we think about how we think, um, we're not iterating again and again and again. That's not what's going on. What's happening is, for example, when we're talking to each other, we're not going, I've tried out a million sentences and this is a sentence that seems to make people give the reaction that I want. What we're actually doing is reaching out empathically, trying to put ourselves into the minds of other people and uh, trying to understand them and to be understood. And that is what a set of very co interestingly constructed matchboxes and beads cannot do. So <sighs> I, I, f I, f I feel I've been talking for about a billion years, <laughs> but I can keep going on this. <laughs> I, why don't I ask, I in relation to AI, uh, tell us a little bit about Augur and uh, oh. <laughs> w what it, that does in the book. Right. And, uh, right. So in the book, uh, my tech billionaires, mine, as if I own them, <laughs> imagine, um, they uh, come up with a system called Augur, which uh, is spelled in the technology way, that is to say no vowel between the G and the R. That's how you know that a thing is a technological object. <laughs> Fewer vowels than normal. Um, and uh, this, this technology object um, will predict for you when there, is going to, there are going to be significant threats to your life, including um, if there's going to be uh, some kind of apocalypse. And what... <laughs> What they've done is to train this AI on all the data available about when uh, apocalypses or very significant uh, disasters happened. And then they say, well, you know, we've just, we've trained it. And then, and then we see if it's 
predicting it correctly, and we tell if it got it right, and we tell if it, and now it can predict absolutely perfectly um, what what is coming. And um, I would I would say I would say the book is the is, is partly an interrogation of that concept. Um, and and the, as the novel opens, just shortly after Lenk has been trying and failing to meditate, uh, he gets an alert on his phone to say, "Well, Augur has found it. It's coming. The big one is on its way. You've got to go now." And then and then we see how that works out for them. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and so this brings us to the other big presence in the book, who who has put these billionaires in touch with Augur, and that's Martha Einkorn. And I'm, I'm wondering, I know too much about your autobiography. <laughs> and I'm wondering if there is some similarity between Martha leaving her father's cult, <laughs> which is not a, a nice way to say versus leaving a very insular religion. All right, so, um, yeah, thing, things go... I, I, I did grow up an Orthodox Jew. Um, I, I can read the Bible in the original Hebrew, which is very useful for arguments with people about the Bible. <laughs> like, can I swear? I can... Does anybody... Some <laughs> fucker <laughs> on, on the internet believes that I have wrongly explained or wrongly translated a sentence from the Bible, and I would like to let that fucker know <laughs> that they have not been reading a good translation. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I, I would say that Martha's leaving... So, so, so Martha, does, Martha grows up in a cult, which is run by her father. Um, this comes out of a specific conversation that I had with a friend who works in Silicon Valley and who is friends with a couple of um, executive assistants from uh, large companies there. I'm fascinated by these people. They're all women. They are so close to such immense power. I have never read a single interview with any of them. and I would be so fascinated to know more about them. But so I asked my friend, and she, and she said to me, well, you know, a lot of them grew up in cults. And <laughs> right, and this made a huge amount of sense to me. And then I thought, I can write that character. If that, if that, I, I totally understand because you know, um, if anybody here has worked in a tech startup, which I guess is probably somewhat less likely than in, um, <laughs> I, there's a nod, there's somewhat less likely than when I was in San Francisco. But <laughs> uh, and I have worked in a tech startup. There's a there is a kind of cult-like atmosphere. There's usually like a person who has an amazing vision, and you're all just blown away by it. And it feels like it really could change the world. And it's incredibly important and inspiring. And you end up staying up really, really late. And like in some cases, people do live together when they're working on a startup, you know, because it's just more convenient to be there constantly all the time. And you meet some of these people. And they really have what you would call a reality distortion field. Like, they make you see what they see is coming in the future more clearly than what is happening right now. And that, you know, that has a it has a lot in common with a cult. Uh, and so I can perfectly see it. Also, if you grow up in a cult, um, and certainly if you grow up in the position that Martha is in, then what you're used to is managing the demands of a 
mm, mercurial, volatile ego. And uh, that certainly is also a very relevant skill for working in a tech startup. Um, so, so immediately that I saw that, I thought, okay, I, I, know, I know who that character is. Now, I must say, my own life, um, I did used to be an Orthodox Jew. I'm not an Orthodox Jew anymore. And um, I will, I'll, say th I'll say this in a Hebrew way, and then I'll explain it. But I, I, I've done it with Derech Eretz, which means like with, with a kind of um, civility. Uh, I think sometimes when people leave, they... Uh, want to do it, they sometimes do it in quite an adolescent way, and that's a sort of normal, you know, time to start going, actually, screw this. Um, but actually, I have a lot of respect for that world. I think they're mostly very sincere people who I disagree with on some things, but, you know, my disagreement is also sincere. And um, I think... I still have, look, I still have good friends in the Orthodox Jewish world. My parents never cut me off. Mm. Um, my, I'm, you know, my brother is very religious and uh, we are still good friends. So I've, I have a funny thing these days actually because it's been like more than 15 years since I ceased being Orthodox. And now Orthodox people who I know try sometimes like unthinkingly try to explain something to me from <laughs> from like the from the orthodox culture where i'm just like but you know you know i grew up doing this but i think i maybe i i don't read as hesitant anymore maybe i just read as like i'm so comfortable with my off the derech <laughs> lifestyle <laughs> that that you sort of forget that i i do actually know how to do it Something that Martha says in the book, uh, which is certainly true of my life, is that I think that only people who can really understand it are people who are also ex-Orthodox Jews. Um, because people who never were go, well, why did you stay there so long? And people who still are, but why would you leave? Um, and it's it's a very particular thing, and there's a very particular kind of like friendship between those of us who know what it is, but um, yeah, it's it's it, there's a funny kind of loneliness to it. Uh, at the same time, that I also think it's a brilliant thing to be. <laughs> and I love that this this leads us to the way that Martha copes with her loneliness, mm. which is on a message board. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So she goes seeking people. Um, thank you for understanding that, actually, <laughs> because, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that people have always understood what she's doing on that message board. Uh, yeah, she goes seeking people who are also interested in the things that her father was interested in, which is to say she grew up in a sort of prepper cult, and um, they did a lot of living off the land and learning to do hunting and gathering. And so she's trying to create social connections and trying to find friendships with people who are sufficiently similar to her that she can talk about the things you know she's looking for somewhere where her expertise will be will be recognized and be re will be rewarded like me trying to kind of you know talk about how i know a lot of biblical hebrew <laughs> because <laughs> if you know that stuff then um it's quite nice to sometimes be around people who go oh yeah 
yeah, that's very good. Yeah. And and then there are the trolls in the comments saying you don't know what you're talking about and you get to shut them down. Right. Correct. It's such fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, she has a rich internet life. And, and and through her we get to hear about some of the precepts that her 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 father believed. Um, and I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about the parable of the fox and the rabbit. Oh, yeah. Given so the cover of the book. <laughs> yeah. So, um, no, somebody said to me about this book, and I really liked it, that there's no character in it who is entirely wrong. Every, everyone has something that they know about. So her father, um, who called himself Enoch, uh, was in many ways a difficult character, then difficult and volatile in a way that then uh, equips her very well to work in tech startups. Um, but he ha he talks a lot about fox and rabbit. There's this sermon that he gives a fox and the rabbit, which is a way of talking about hunting and gathering versus living in the settled agricultural world that most everybody in the world now lives in. Not everybody, almost everybody. And uh, Enoch talks about it as having been, in many ways, a huge error on the part of humans to go and do agriculture, which once you learn about... So I, I for, my own, for my own enjoyment, I did um, a, a, a part of a degree in archaeology with um, a university in the UK for the sheer pleasure of it. And one of the things that is shocking is... Um, you learn about when we started doing agriculture, which was about 11,000 years ago at the end of the last ice age. And it was terrible. Do you all know this? I think Yuval Noah Harari also talks about it, so maybe more people know about it now. That um, there were some hundreds of generations, at least 100 generations, in which the people who were doing agriculture were more malnourished, they got more diseases, their babies died more than the people who were just doing the thing that we evolved to do, which is hunting and gathering. And um, why did they carry on? Why did they keep... So there are a bunch of different theories, and, and I put some of them into the book. The truth is, nobody knows, and if you have an idea right now, or this has been recorded for a podcast, right? So yes, yes, indeed. Anyone who's listening to the podcast who also who hasn't... You may come up with a new idea which may be as true as anything that anyone's come up with because we do not know. They did not have writing. They didn't write down what they were thinking as they were seeing their children die of malnutrition and yet carrying on doing this thing where they put seeds in the ground and hope that they grew rather than, you know, going out and catching an elk, which was what their father would have done or their mother would have done, you know, that at some point people just went, I don't know, like it maybe was an adolescent rebellion. We just don't know. Um, I like that in the book there there is the theory that perhaps we, we like a routine. We like to know it's coming. Right. right. So one of the theories, and this is, you know, this is a this is an archaeological, like historical theory, is the reason we did it is because we hate uncertainty. And even though we're actually worse nourished if we are hunt if we're if we're agriculture rather than hunting gathering, at least with agriculture you can look out and go, there's my field. That's, that's, that's what's coming. You know, there's my two sickly sheep. That's what's going on for me. Rather than throwing yourself on the mercy of the world every day, 
and going, I'm just going to see what comes. That we're so... It's it's called it's called the terror management theory, as in T E R R O R. That at the point that we well, this is the thought of the book. At the point that we understand that there is a future and not just a present, that we became so terrified of the idea of the future that we had to convince ourselves we could control it, even unto our own detriment. Which. Um, I'm sorry if that's rough. That's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of us are in therapy, so. Right, <laughs> right. you're in Manhattan. There's a <laughs> bunch of therapists on call, presumably 24 hours. So um, having realized that essentially we're talking about, uh, we realized that as humans we're going to die and we also don't know what the future holds for us, even one second into the future, um, we became so terrified that we did this thing that is incredibly bad for us. I'm going to ask you one more question. Yeah. How do you, as a novelist... I am a novelist. As a novelist, yes. um, convey a sense of optimism in the work after acknowledging that there is so much fear and so much inequity and so much unknown? All right. So... <laughs> That yeah, the novel the novel does end in a somewhat at li least a little bit optimistic of a place. Um, I the more I thought about it, the more it seemed to me to be too easy to write a novel which would end with and then it all went to shit. Yeah. Uh, that's what we all think is going to happen anyway, and there f it feels there's something lazy about it and something that lets us off the hook about it. Um, which is to say, if we think this is all gonna just, we're, we're fucked, then we get to kind of do nothing, you know, sit on social media or whatever it is that we're doing and just go, well, pff, what could I do? Um, so it seemed to me that there was a kind of moral imperative actually to point out that the world still has incredible, wonderful places full of wild beauty. That whatever systems we've created as a human society, we can recreate in a different way if we want to. That we literally just lived through several years where we acted as a global community for the first time to prevent and or to at least mitigate a threat to us as a species. And if we could do it for that, we can do it again. And all we need to do is to really want to. Um, so I, I keep quoting this Jewish thing, which I'm going to do again now, uh, which is, um, it, it, it starts, which means it's not up to you to complete the work but neither are you free to refrain from it. Which is to say, you're not allowed, just because it's not gonna get finished in our lifetime, and it's not gonna all be fine, and we're not gonna be able to figure out every solution to everything. You're not just allowed to sit on your bum and wait for the doom to come. Just get going, go outside your house. If there's a piece of trash, pick it up. That's where you start, start where you are. And, um, I guess if that makes me a cockeyed optimist, <laughs> I'll take it. I don't think I am, actually. I think I'm... <sighs> I, th I, th I think hope and 
in, in these times demands a certain kind of toughness. And I think that's what I'm suggesting, is toughening up. Do you guys know that um, Tony Benn quote? where he So he's a British politician um, of the Labour movement, and he said, uh, there is no final victory, nor is there a final defeat. There is only the same battle to be fought over and over. So toughen up, bloody toughen up. Thank you so much. We <laughs> needed that pep talk, right? <laughs> Thank you, everybody.